Thank you, worship team. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as we are continuing to work our way through the text. Uh, For those of you who are visiting, again, we are so glad for you to be here. Our practice here at First Baptist Church is to go through books of the Bible, one verse at a time, one chapter at a time. And so uh, we we just are so glad that you're here. But uh, bear in mind, you're coming in in the midst of an argument that Paul is making in the book of Romans, and so there's a whole lot that's come before, and of course there's a whole lot that's coming after. And so I'll do my best just to uh, keep, you, keep you up to speed, um, but this morning we're just going to focus in on verse 31 of chapter 3. And before we dive in, I thought that uh, I would just read it to you one more time and then ask God to help us through His Holy Spirit by illuminating the text in front of us. And so, if you would, please look with me in Romans chapter 3 and verse 31. It says, Paul says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do we overthrow it? And he answers, he says, By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. Let's just, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us this morning. Would you please bow with me? Our Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for the gift of your word and that you speak to us. Lord, as we ponder the full richness of what the Apostle Paul is trying to say to us in verse 31 this morning, before we look at chapter 4 in the weeks ahead, God, our prayer is that you would help us to understand how faith leads to a fulfilling of the law, an upholding of the law. And we pray, God, that you would use your spirit this morning in our hearts, that you would illuminate the text, that you would open our minds to understand and to see exactly what you're trying to say to us. That as the text says, Lord, we, your people, walking by faith in Christ, would be a people who uphold the law. We pray, God, you'd help us to see that and begin to open our eyes to that this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we approach Vacation Bible School here in another week, one of the dangers that I am acutely aware of And one of the dangers which I wish to impress upon many of you who are volunteering at Vacation Bible School in a week's time is the danger of a false confession. As we're presenting the gospel and as we're sharing uh, with these young ones about their need to trust in Christ, we want to make sure that uh, they truly understand the significance of what Christ has done for them and that when we invite them to place their faith in Christ, that they understand the need for repentance. 2,000 years ago, as our Christ, as our Lord and Savior was engaging in ministry, there was a leper who came to him who sought his healing. This is a man plagued by a horrific skin disease which not only attacks the skin, it attacks the nervous system. It is in It is incredibly infectious. It was a death sentence. And as a result of having this disease of leprosy, in that day and age, you were not allowed to have any contact with anyone else because it was so contagious. You could infect them, they could get sick, and they effectively were handed a death sentence as well. They were cut off from society. They were excluded from worship in the temple. They were outcasts. 
when people would see them coming, they would point at them and say, oh, there's a leper. And the lepers even legally were required to cry out, leper, unclean, unclean, unclean. Nevertheless, this man hears that there is a Savior. And he approaches Christ and he says to Jesus, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. What the leper is confessing is that if it is Jesus' will, if he so desires it, the leper knows that Jesus can heal him. He can take away his leprosy. And he comes to Christ as the Lord is making his way down a busy road in Mark, Gospel of Mark chapter 1, and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus responds, I will. The words from his mouth are, this is what I desire to see happen. I do will for you to be clean, be healed. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that immediately the leper was healed because it was the will of the Lord to heal him. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and Jesus gives him these words, these instructions. See that you say nothing to anyone. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded in the law as a proof to them. He willed for the leper to be clean. And he willed for the leper to go and show himself to the priest. But he also willed for something else. He willed that the leper, at least for now, would stay silent. The last thing that Jesus says to him is, see that you say nothing to anyone. The leper knew that whatever Christ willed, that was what would happen. And he was happy that the Lord willed for his healing. But as soon as he had that healing, he heard that it was the Lord's will that he follow the law of Moses and go and offer the necessary sacrifices in the, pre, uh, in the temple as a proof to the priests. And he also knew that the Lord willed for him, at least for now, to stay silent. And while the leper was happy to receive the blessing of healing, he was not willing to yield his will to the will of the Lord. And the text tells us quite tragically that what happened next is that he went and he talked about it to everyone and he told the whole world that Jesus had healed him. And the text tells us that as a result of that, Jesus could no longer openly enter into a town, but he was out in the desert places and people were needing to come to him from every quarter. Our Savior's desire was to be able to go to the sick, to go to those who were hurting, to the demon-possessed, to meet them where they were, to heal them. But as a result of the leper's disobedience, Jesus' ministry was made harder. It was made more difficult because now the throngs of crowds were flocking around him. People were coming to him, and rather than him being able to go to those who needed him most, he was pressed back out into the wilderness, and now everybody had to come out to him. It made ministry harder. And as we sit here today, what I want to impress upon all of us, and this is what the Apostle Paul is touching on in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, when we believe in Jesus, we receive healing because that is his will. 
He desires our healing. He desires our blessing. We must have faith to receive the gift of salvation. But all too often, how we approach our relationship with Christ is we are glad to look back to the cross and to receive the forgiveness of sins that he is offering to us there on the cross. But we will not have faith to look forward to the hope and the glory that awaits us and to strive to obey those things which he has commanded us today for our good, our blessing, and ultimately his glory. We will to receive the healing but we will not will to yield our will to his will for all the blessing that he has for us. Contrary to that viewpoint, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 31 says, do we overthrow the law? Do we throw out obedience to the Ten Commandments? Do we just say down with all the moral expectations that God puts upon us as a result of our faith? He says, no. He says, may it never be. He says, may such a thing never happen. On the contrary, Paul goes on in verse 31, on the contrary, he says, by this faith, we uphold the law. Now, this is a crucial point that we need to make. Starting next week, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 4, and we're going to start unpacking Abraham and what it means to have faith. But here at the outset, it is important for me to remind you once again for the Word of God to speak once again to the reality that faith in Christ does not result in anarchy and self-indulgent behavior. Faith in Christ does not result in an overthrow of the Ten Commandments. Faith in Christ does not result in you being able to live according to your will. Faith in Christ means you still yield your life to the will of your Savior. Paul actually touches on this all the way back in verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, he says, apart from the law, but he makes this really profound statement. He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness. Then he, so he says that, and then he jumps, you jump down to verse 31. So he says that in verse 21, then 10 verses later, he says, so do we overthrow the law by this faith? On the contrary, we uphold it. And so there's a couple of questions that I want to wrestle with, with you this morning. How exactly do we uphold the law through faith in Christ? And if it's true that it is only through faith in Christ by which we can uphold the law, then the corollary must also be examined. How exactly does the nation of Israel, how exactly is it that the unbelieving Jews, who were so zealous for their law, how is it that they fail to keep the law through their unbelief in Christ? And all of this I want to look at from the perspective of considering today whether or not you and I are kind of like that leper on that road so many thousands of years ago. Are we trusting in Jesus with a backward glance at the cross while refusing to have the hope and the blessing that he offers to us today if we continue to walk by faith in obedience? Let's take a look at it. First off, Paul says, we uphold the law. First things first, okay? God is far more to us than one who simply commands. But even though he is more, he is not less. He is still a God 
who commands us. He is still a God who mandates and decrees certain things for our good. He is bound to the glory of his omniscience, that is, his knowledge of all things, and to his omnibenevolence, that is, the fact that he is perfectly good, completely good in all that he does. Since God is bound to his perfect knowledge and he is bound to his perfect goodness, he must decree for us what is best for us. Sometimes you talk to people and they're like, well, what's the Lord's will in this? I feel like maybe the Lord is leading me down this path, and I I know that in most circumstances this would be the wrong thing to do, but I think maybe God's leading me down this direction, because once I get there, he's going to lead me in a different direction, and all of this is happening according to the will of God. That's lunacy. That's you pretending you're following the will of God when really you're just making it up as you go. That when we consider who God is, he is one who commands us. He is more to us than just one who gives commandments, but he is not less. And as we understand that he is one who commands us, we have to understand that he gives us commandments out of the nature of who he is. He is our heavenly father. He desires what is good for us. And so God uses all of human history to bring blessing, even when it is apparent that evil is allowed to succeed even for a season. God uses even evil in his sovereignty to bring about the blessing of all of us. He never commands us, you or me, to enter into evil, but he is so good in all that he decrees and in all that he commands. The scriptures say that with regards to his sovereignty, he even uses those things which are evil to bring about blessing. Over all of human history are written the words of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, in which Joseph Joseph spoke to his brothers who sold him into slavery, and he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. As we stop to consider the law, church, and why God gave the law in the first place, we need to remember two things. Negatively speaking, disobeying the law is sin against God. It's a sin to disobey God what God has commanded us to do. When we sin, what that is, is we are choosing to believe that sin holds out some promise of happiness, some promise of joy that is greater to us than the joy of blessing that God holds forth. Nobody sins out of duty. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, well, I'm a sinner. I just got to go do that today. Now, it's interesting that that's true of us. We are duty-bound to sin, but the nature of our rebellion is rooted in our refusal to believe in Jesus. It's, It's rooted in our refusal to trust what God says. So we are duty bound. but no sinner would ever say, I just got to go out and be a bad person today. That's just who I am. They would do bad things. They would sin because sin holds some promise of pleasure, some promise of delight, some happiness that righteousness doesn't seem, doesn't appear to hold for them. Negatively disobeying God's law is a refusal to trust what God says. Positively, God gives us the law for our good, and he gave it for a good purpose, and when we follow it, we know we will have God's blessing. 
When Moses recorded what the Lord required of his people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses said, quote, you must keep the Lord's commandments for your good. It's for our good that God commands us to do his will. And the saints, the saints of the Old Testament knew this. Those old men and women who loved God, they received his commandments as blessings and not as burdens. They actually seemed to be in love with God's law. If you actually read the Old Testament carefully, you will stumble across an incredible number of prayers and songs and statements. For example, Psalm 119 and verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. They loved God's law, not the unbelieving nation of Israel, not the unbelieving Jews, but those saints of the Old Testament who hoped in God, they loved what God said. And I'm not overstating the case. Again, in the Psalms, he says, I will lift up my hands. Now, if you've read the Psalms, invariably, whenever the psalmist says, I lift up my hands, you think he's going to say, to your throne, O God, or to you, O Lord, because that's what like 90% of them say. I lift up my hands to worship you. It's an expression of worship. But in Psalm 119 and verse 48, the psalmist says, I lift up my hands to your commandments. He's worshiping what the Lord has spoken through his law. He says, I lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. And again, in the Psalms, therefore, he says, I love your commandments above gold. I love them even above very fine gold. King David knew, probably just as painfully as anyone ever could, how the law of God could crush us with guilt. Like the guilt of murder and adultery. Despite this, no one, I feel like Donald Trump when I say this, but it's what's written in my manuscript, so I'm going to say it. No one loved the law of God more than David did. You may have heard the former president use that type of hyperbole. David reveled in its practical spiritual value, and he said that the law, this is from Psalm 19, he sang this song, he wrote this song and he sang it. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And my personal favorite from this psalm, he says, the fear of the Lord is clean. I just love that. I cannot help but be reminded of that leper. When God healed him, he then commanded him to stay silent for a time. But even though he was clean physically, he went on to disobey Jesus because he didn't fear the will of the one who had healed him. David, who loves the law, who loves it as the word of God, what it truly is, an extension of his person given to us for our good and his glory. David said, the fear of the Lord is clean. It's clean. It makes you clean. And it endures forever. 
Wow, what a statement. He goes on, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. David knew that the law was good and he should have followed it. And he knew, having failed in that disastrous affair with Bathsheba, how much heartache and pain there was in disobeying what the Lord had asked, what the Lord had commanded. But David knew something else about the law. And this is really what I want to get at today. David knew that not only was the law good, but the, that God's law was interwoven with God's grace. Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 3. He says, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. But he says in verse 21, the law bears witness to it. When Paul says that faith in Christ leads to us upholding the law, and when he says that the law bears witness to the grace of Christ, we see here that the keeping of the law can never be fully accomplished unless we see in the law a great giant sign pointing us to Jesus. David knew that this grace was interwoven throughout the law. For example, as God was about to, uh, we see a couple of things before I get ahead of myself. When we look at the law carefully, we see that a relationship with God is a past blessing which he initiates. And when he gives you that blessing of entering into a relationship with him, he then gives you promises and warnings through which you will be encouraged and by which you will have hope. And then he also gives you in the law this grace, which is interwoven all throughout, this blessing of a promised forgiveness for sins, and he also, event, he also makes this promise as well, which you must always look to the future from the perspective of the old covenant. He gives you this promise of a future empowerment one day to actually obey the law. And that's what I want to look at. First, past blessing. As God was about to give Moses the Ten Commandments, he reminded Moses of that past blessing, that past grace of having initiated a relationship with Israel. God says to Moses, it says, the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagles' wings and I brought you from Egypt to myself. He says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So God went to them when they were enslaved, when they were not seeking him, and he found them and he rescued them. That is exactly what Jesus did with this leper. The leper comes and Jesus heals him. He wills that he should be cleaned, though the leper had done nothing to deserve it, though the leper was not entitled to it. And in the same way, when we place our faith in Christ, it is entirely at his initiation. He has come to us and he has saved us. He has died on the cross for our sins, and salvation is held forth for us free of charge as an act of his grace. So this is testified to in the law of Moses. God speaking through Moses says, okay, I'm going to give you some laws, but before I do, I want to remind you of this. I already rescued you. I've already saved you. The second thing he says we have this relationship. This is already inherent in the law. The fact that I'm even giving you the law tells you that we have this relationship. But then he says the second blessing that comes to us through the law is the blessing of hope for the future 
and the encouragement of a warning. God promised a future blessing, and it was in the very center of the revelation in which he gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. When God came down to speak with Moses, he identified himself in this way. He said, it says the scripture, the, the scripture says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now notice this. Pay careful attention and hold this in your mind. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and the transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In other words, At the very head of the law, as God is about to give the Ten Commandments, he makes this statement, which is a provision of future hope for failing to keep the law. The law says that God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So before God even begins to give commandments, he says, I want you to know that I can forgive, that I will forgive. This is said before he ever even gives the commandments. And its promises extend far into the future, even as far as to the fourth generation. Of course, we know his intention was for it to go even beyond that. But God also promises a warning, an encouragement. And he gives this warning for the sake of fear, for the sake of us being made clean through not wanting to disobey God says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is what we see. He rescues these people out of Egypt. You have the Exodus. He crushes Egypt. He makes a laughingstock out of the world's first superpower, national superpower, the empire of Egypt. He so humiliates the Egyptians that when they finally drive the Hebrews out, they give them all their gold and all their valuable belongings so that the Hebrews are weighed down with gold as they're being ushered out of Egypt and sent on their way to the promised land. Having come out of Egypt, they now meet God on Mount Sinai where God says, I have already rescued you, and there is a day coming in which I will forgive you, and yet here is the warning of what I'm about to command. And so we see here that he begins a relationship, and then he orients their focus towards the future with promises that are intended to invoke hope and fear. That's exactly what Jesus did to the leper on the side of the road. Here is healing. I have already healed you. You have already been saved. I will that you stay silent, and I will that you go and keep the law of Moses and offer the appropriate sacrifice to the priest as a proof. The leper received the healing but he did not place his future hope in the blessings that were there for him if he had continued to follow and obey Christ. 
We see this mirrored in the law. We see it mirrored in Jesus talking to this poor leper on the side of the road. Grace is interwoven into the law. It is grace that we have been saved, and it is grace by which we are commanded to continue walking with the Lord. But we find a third thing, returning to that theme of forgiveness. The future blessing in the law, which the law bears witness to, is that there is grace in the law in the promise of forgiveness. God says in that same passage to Moses, in effect, he's saying, I am making ample provision for pardon, for atonement, for restoration, if you stumble. God is quite clear. He says, I don't delight as much in punishment as I do in reconciliation. He says, my wrath doesn't have a hair trigger. I'm not like an angry God poised just waiting to zap you. He says, on the contrary, I am slow to anger, but my judgment falls upon those who continue to sin with a high hand and who will not turn from their sinning in order to receive compassion and grace from me. David knew this, and this was what was at the heart of the law. And that's why David sings in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate. Psalm 103 is echoing that same passage from, uh, from Deuteronomy, from the beginning of the law. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But of course, David goes on, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. David learned this from the law. And the evidence is in the first words cited, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. But there's a fourth thing in the law, which the law bears witness to, and which is only fully given to us in Christ. And it's the blessing of empowerment, the power, the ability to actually keep the law. The law promised that way in the future, way in the distant future, God would offer to give to them the power that they needed for obedience. In fact, as we read through the scriptures in the Old Testament, we can sense some of their desperation and their craving for this blessing of empowerment. They wanted to obey, they just couldn't obey. For example, they looked away from themselves to God for the spiritual enabling that they needed to keep God's commandments. You see this clearly in certain prayers that they prayed. For example, open my eyes, O Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. They knew they couldn't see what they needed to see unless God helped them, and they asked God for that help. You see it as well in other prayers, such as incline my heart to your testimonies and your statutes and not to selfish gain. What an incredible prayer. They sensed it. They knew that without the empowering grace of God, without the Spirit enabling them, they would be given over to something as silly as the love of money. They would turn away from God and go after material riches. But the Holy Spirit of empowerment for obedience was not to be poured out fully in the Old Testament. For example, God promised through Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and this is in keeping with what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that the law and the prophets bear witness to this. 
Ezekiel says, the, God speaking through Ezekiel says, I will give them one day one heart, and he says, a new spirit I will put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And this isn't the only place it says it. It also says it in Jeremiah. But what we find is that the first time it was ever spoken was actually at the end of the law. God starts off the law and he says, I just want you to know that I'm God, I've rescued you, I've started a relationship with you, and now I'm going to give you a bunch of commandments. I will forgive. There will be a day of forgiveness coming. He says this before he ever mentions any commandments. Then he gives the whole law. He gives all the different rules and regulations and commandments. Moses repeats all of this all throughout the book of of Deuteronomy. And then we come to the end of Deuteronomy, and we find in Deuteronomy chapter 29, God concludes, speaking through Moses, Oh, that they would have such a heart to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their children forever. He says, number one, I'm your God. I've already started a relationship with you. Number two, there is forgiveness. There is reconciliation. And now I'm going to give you all of my commandments. And then as he comes to the end in Deuteronomy chapter 29, God is He's, he's groaning almost through, through Moses saying, oh, that you actually had this heart to obey and do what I've commanded. The implication being you can't because you don't have the heart to obey. You don't have what is necessary. You don't have this empowerment. He says that in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And then just one chapter later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants after you, notice this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. So there is this promise of grace woven throughout the whole thing. There are commandments that are given for our blessing, but before those commandments are even spoken, it is clear that God knows we cannot possibly keep these commandments unless we turn to him in faith, we place our hope in him, and we seek from him the power that we need to enable us to obey. What we see then in the whole Exodus account is that God begins a relationship with us. It starts with baby steps of faith, and it results in salvation. It takes us away from the domain of darkness, and it transfers us into the kingdom of light. And all so often what happens is we start to believe in an empty and powerless gospel in which we think that all salvation consists of is looking over our shoulder backwards across 2,000 years of history to what Jesus did for us on the cross and believing that that is true. It starts with that, but it must continue not with a backwards glance, but with a forwards glance. God has blessed us, and God has promised more blessing for us 
if we will continue to look to Him for our every need and our every blessing. We cannot keep the law today unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We cannot obey in the things God asks us to do as people of the new covenant if we are not constantly seeking for His help through prayer and seeking for it in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out freely as a result of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Having atoned for our sins, He not only wiped our slate clean, but He gives us so much more. We are forgiven, we are free from the burden, but even more precious, we have this intimate relationship with Him in which He gives us what we need to walk in obedience. The Jews loved that law, but as Paul has made explicitly clear on multiple occasions, chapters 1 to the end of 3 now, they could not keep it despite their love and their zeal for it. And he'll make it clear again in later chapters. Here he offers just this little hint. Christians don't overthrow the law. Christians, by faith, are empowered to keep the law. Church, this is so important. Amen. Thank you. That's quite unexpected. Thank you. Praise to the Lord. If we look back, in fact, and we ask, why couldn't these guys... I mean, David was obviously a saint, right? Moses was obviously a saint. We have multiple saints all throughout the Old Testament, but the Scriptures are clear. The vast majority of the Jews, they were not truly walking with the Lord. And if we ask what was missing from the hearts of so many who heard that law and yet failed to walk in it, the answer from the Scriptures is clear, and that answer is that faith was missing. Faith was lacking. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2 explains why the word of God at Mount Sinai and then again 40 years later at the crossing of the Jordan River did not profit those who heard it even though the text says it was received by them as good news. Hebrews 4.2 says, for good news came to us just as it came to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who who listened. And so as we come to a conclusion this morning, First Baptist Church, you want to have a heart of love? You want to love God? You want to have such a heart for Him that you will desire to obey Him and you will receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience? It comes by hearing with faith, that is, believing it. Now, I could give you the scriptural definition, and I will, but I want to illustrate it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. We can't see it with our eyes, but yet Scripture tells us that when we have faith, we are convinced it is real despite our inability to see it with the eyes in our head. You say, I don't know exactly what that looks like. Yes, you do. We have all experienced it. A number of years ago, I uh, was serving in the United States Marine Corps, and lo and behold, I had scheduled to go to boot camp 
And I was going to, you do three months at boot camp. It's basic training. It's your initial training. And they take you away from all your family and friends. And they put you in this military base. And they don't let you have any contact with the outside world. And the idiot that I was, I, and you had the right to schedule whenever you wanted to do this. But I chose to do it over the Christmas holidays. <laughs> I don't even know now why I did that. I remember in discussions with Shanti, it was like, the best time to do it? I, I mean, even now, I'm like, what? How is that the best time to do it? Newlyweds, man. They just, you know, they don't always think these things through. But um, we, uh, I'm there, and, uh, and uh, I remember on, Christ- on Christmas Eve, all of our drill instructors, drill sergeants are going home to be with their families. And of course, the low man on the pole, the low man on the totem pole, the, the poor drill sergeant that, you know, he's the newest guy there. He gets stuck with the Christmas Eve duty, in which he's going to be there on the, on the, we call it on deck, in the barracks with us as we're getting ready to go to sleep on Christmas Eve. And of course, he didn't want to be there. He was miserable and angry. And of course, he didn't hesitate to take it out on us, because that's what you do in boot camp. You take it out on those poor recruits. And we were there, and I'll never forget this. It's like, we, we have to go to bed. It's, it's, it's 9 o'clock at night, and we're supposed to be in our racks, our bunks, at 9 o'clock at night. And he's having us clean the latrines all the way up until 9 o'clock on Christmas Eve. He's in, they, they have like a little, a little room where the drill instructor gets to go that no recruits are allowed to go in that room. It's his little private. And of course, he's got like a TV or something in there. And he's probably watching Christmas holiday specials or whatever. I don't know. But he's in there, you know, not really having a great time, but, you know, at least watching holiday specials while we're all in the latrine scrubbing and cleaning. And we were using these old newspapers to clean the latrines. They didn't give us, you know, paper towels. They gave us newspaper, and we're, like, cleaning with newspaper. And uh, one of the recruits is looking in the newspaper. He's like, wow, look at all these movies that are coming out at Christmas time that we're not getting to see because we're here in the barracks, not out there watching movies with our friends and hanging out with our family. And one recruit says, you know, I really wish... I could be there with my mom tomorrow, my mom and dad. My mom makes the best turkey. And he closed his eyes. And I remember this just as vividly as it was yesterday, because we were all sitting there thinking the exact same thing. He's like, I can see it, and I can almost taste it. He had had a past experience of Christmas holiday with his mom and his family. And as a result of that past experience, he could envision something that he was sure was happening. Although in these poor set of circumstances, he himself would not be able to be there to enjoy it. But he could still recall the taste of the turkey. He could still recall the sweetness of the sweet potatoes, the mashed potatoes, all kinds of potatoes, the rolls, the gravy, the pumpkin pie, because we always do pumpkin pie, right? He could see it, and he was convinced it was real, even though he wasn't there. Listen to what the scriptures say, First Baptist Church. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians, no eye has seen, 
no ear has heard, nor can the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. When you close your eyes, you can't see it, you can't imagine it, but in faith, you can just about taste it. It's there, it's real, and God promises it's coming one day for those who love him. That's the rub. This is where the kicker of the sermon comes. You want to go to glory. You want to sit down at that banquet table with the Lord and with all your brothers and sisters, and you want to enter into paradise. It is there. It is for you. It is offered free of charge. But it does not consist of a singular backward glance to the cross. It starts with that, but it must continue with a day-by-day walk of faith which must result in a transformed heart that loves Jesus. That poor leper on that road, he wanted the healing, but he didn't want the blessing of continuing to walk in faith and obedience with Christ. And as a result, he made Christ's ministry hard. But did you know that in the Gospel of Mark, there's another leper that's spoken of? In Mark chapter 14, the last week of Jesus' life, He is just days from going to the cross. And in Mark chapter 14, it says he gets together to have a dinner with his disciples and a bunch of friends. And it says in Mark 14, verse 3, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure and very costly perfume, and she broke the flask, and she poured it over his head. All of Israel is in an incredible state of tension. This Messiah has entered into Jerusalem. He has flipped over the money changers' tables in the temple. He has driven the priests from the temple. He is welcoming the children and the lame and all to come to him in the temple where he heals them all and he teaches. The king is in his house and they can't get rid of him. But conspiracies are being plotted. Schemes are being devised. The religious establishment for the last year has made it clear that they do not appreciate Jesus. They don't like him. They don't want anything to do with him. And even now, this very night, one will leave from that room and go and enter into an arrangement with the Pharisees and the religious establishment to betray Jesus in order that he would be crucified. This is happening in this very moment. And in this very moment, we're so focused on all of that because it's so important to our salvation. We sometimes miss that there was a leper who was healed because lepers don't throw parties. They don't have dinner parties in their houses if they're still lepers. The leper welcomed Jesus despite all of Jerusalem being in an uproar and the leaders hating him. The leper welcomed Jesus because he loved him. Love Jesus, and he will enable you to walk in faithful obedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much, Lord, 
for giving us your son who meets our every need, who satisfies our every desire if we would look to him. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we do, you would kindle in us a passion and a love. We know that it is only done by the power of your spirit. It is only given to us through faith. And we pray that we would continue to look to you in faith for a heart of love to grow inside of us. God, help us to love your son so that our obedience is not done from a place of drudgery, but that we would delight to walk in fulfillment of the law because your son enables us to do so. Help us to depend upon Christ. Help us to love Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.